Well, as many of you know, in less than a week, I'll be in a new state. Um, if you don't know, I'm, I'm moving. My family and I are moving to Texas. And so you might even say that I'll be in a new country. <laughs> there you go, right on cue. And as I've thought about that transition, I often think about people we'll meet when we get down there and how I'll introduce myself and my family. And I don't know about you, but when I introduce myself, I often share something um, about myself as the situation calls for. And I do that especially whenever I'm new somewhere. So I've been thinking about that. And when I arrive to a church in Texas and I say to somebody that meets, I'm going to say, hi, uh, my name is Gavin and I, I just moved here from Philadelphia. Uh, but that, of course, wouldn't explain very much. It's not much of an introduction. So I might talk about our awesome friendships here. This is not supposed to happen again. <laughs> this happened before. So I might, I might talk about our awesome friendships here or our wonderful co-workers in the gospel or the gratitude that we have for... The gratitude that we have, Julie and I, for all of the, the opportunities that Liam in the session. The gratitude we have for all the opportunities that Liam in the session have given me over the years. I can talk more when I meet people about the blessing it has been especially during COVID, of watching of watching our deacons and deaconesses serve faithfully week in and week out. So you can see, I could describe a lot of different things about Philadelphia when I introduce myself in our new place. Now, on the one hand, I mention all of that to make it abundantly clear when we leave and meet new people, we will have the people of 10th in our hearts. So that's that's hopefully the end of that type of talk <laughs> for all of our sakes. <laughs> so on the other hand, there was a, on the one hand, a few sentences back. So on the other hand, I, I begin this way talking about the idea of introductions because in Matthew 21, our chapter tonight, Jesus is introducing himself to a new place, uh, the city of Jerusalem. Granted, yes, for those of you who know your Bibles well, the gospel of John reveals that he spent time in Jerusalem before the triumphal entry, the section that begins Matthew 21, and even did a previous temple clearing, most likely at the start of his ministry in Jerusalem. But in Matthew 21, he's in Jerusalem with a, a specific purpose, a new and specific purpose that he has made abundantly clear uh, from Matthew 16 all the way up to Matthew 19. It's abundantly clear that he has come to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and to rise again. And so when he comes this time, to Jerusalem. Yes, he has been there before, but when he comes this time, he is looking to introduce himself in a new and full and unreserved fashion. 
He's looking to proclaim to the people of Jerusalem and, and, and to the world, really, through his actions, who he is. Uh, with that in mind, that brief introduction in mind, during the first half of the sermon, we're going to meditate on the voices of Jesus' introduction to Jerusalem, the, the voices that are introducing him to Jerusalem. That's the first thing that we're going to cover, the voices. And then the second thing is the purpose of Jesus' introduction or his entry into Jerusalem. The, the, the voices first and then the purpose second. Those are the two key words that you can focus on as you think about how this, this sermon is organized. And it's not organized around the verses in such a way that, you know, the first three verses deal with the voices and the second deal with the purpose, something like that. Instead, at first, we're going to talk about the voices that, that you hear throughout the passage. And then we'll look at the purpose that we see in this passage for why Jesus came to Jerusalem. Well, if you're like me, when you would think that Jesus would arrive to Jerusalem with, with a giant um, megahorn of some kind, some sort of loud thing that enables his voice to be clear and enables him to declare to, to Jerusalem and really to, to, to the world, since it's now occupied by Rome, to, de- to declare who he is. But instead, uh, in Matthew 21, he comes on the scene and he introduces himself in a very indirect way, a very indirect way. That is, he commits to certain direct actions. He commits to certain direct actions, but then he lets others interpret those actions. And in so doing, Jesus lets other voices introduce him to Jerusalem. And he really does this in two ways. Well, first, throughout this section, Matthew 21, we're going we're to start in Matthew 21, 1 through 17. Jesus lets the voice of scripture speak for him. As, as he's being introduced to Jerusalem, he lets the voice of scripture introduce him. And then second, Jesus allows the voice of the humble to speak for him. Those are the two points that we're going to start with. He lets scripture speak for him and he lets the humble speak for him. Well, this tells us a great deal about Jesus, even the method of his introduction. Only the voice of God's word and the voice of the humble can, stay, can say true things about Jesus in a genuine way. The world, the world left to its own devices in its pride, in its arrogance, in its assumption that it doesn't need to depend on its creator is unable to say true things about Christ. So in this passage, we're going to see that the two voices that actually introduced Jesus to Jerusalem is the voice of scripture and the voice of the humble. Now, in order to see this, we'll be looking at a variety of verses in chapter 21. So instead of following along in your bulletin, I encourage you to, to pick up one of those Bibles in front of you and turn to page 826. The, the, the bulletin only has five verses printed or so, but we're going we're gonna to start in verse 1 of chapter 21. So if you want, turn to page 826 and you'll be able to follow along. And when you look at the beginning of Matthew 21, verses 1 and 2, you, you see that Jesus sends two disciples to go find a donkey and bring it back for him to ride on as he enters the city. This is a familiar story for some of us. It's called the triumphal entry. And this action would have great significance to the city of Jerusalem. The book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, it's it's by one of the prophets, a prophet called Zechariah, explicitly predicted that the king would come to Jerusalem on a donkey. The king would come to Jerusalem on a donkey. Well, what that means is Jesus' actions are communicating something. He was introducing himself through his actions, but even more importantly, through the voice of God as recorded in the Old Testament. 
Now, some people in Jerusalem, nearly all of the people walking with him from Galilee, saw this image of the donkey and realized he was claiming to be the king. And they respond. In in verse 9, if you look down, it says that the people respond crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. So the voice of scripture has introduced Jesus to Jerusalem. And the people have responded to that introduction. They have heard that this is God's king who has descended on God's city. And they realize he's come as the servant David. And some of you know David was the great king of Israel. And God promised David that one of his sons would always serve as a king over Israel. So by coming on a donkey, Jesus is saying through his actions and then through the voice of scripture, um, my name is Jesus and I'm the king of this city. He's declaring through his actions and then through the voice of scripture that he is the king of God's holy city. And Matthew makes this explicitly clear for us. If you look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 21, Matthew quotes Zechariah 9, 9 in order to make it abundantly clear that Jesus is introducing to himself to the world in a full and climactic way. Yes, he's been doing it for 20 chapters, but now in a full and climactic way, he is announcing that he is the son of David. He is the king. He is the Christ. And that's why Zechariah 9, 9, as quoted by Matthew says, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. You see, the voice of scripture is introducing Jesus. He is the king. And we meditated a lot on this section last week, but what this tells us is that the only way for us to actually discern who Jesus is is by listening to the voice of scripture. There can be no thinking our way rationally into a conclusion that a man who was a a carpenter, who was from one of the smallest and, and least regarded cities in all of Israel, Nazareth, would someday actually come to Jerusalem and ride on a donkey and that this is actually God's anointed king. There's no way you would come to that conclusion on your own, of course, apart from the word of God. This reveals to us our desperate states, our need, our dependence on God to reveal to us himself in order for us to actually respond the way that, of course, the people respond. Hosanna to the son of David. This tells us right out of the gate something about ourselves. We are in desperate need for God to intervene on our lives and to tell us who is his Christ, who is the king over not just Jerusalem, but this entire world. This is one of the main points that we're going to be hitting on in this sermon, our utter dependence and neediness on God for us to be able to actually respond rightly to God. Well, we meditated a lot on those first 11 verses last week, so we're now going to move on to 12 through 17, what people call the the clearing of the temple. I hope you can see that first point, though. It is the voice of God which reveals Jesus to the world. But let's now turn to 12 through 17. Jesus enters the temple, Matthew tells us, and when he gets there, the temple officials were were in the temple courtyard where they shouldn't have been, and they were exchanging money, and they were making money by exchanging money. You see, there were Jews who had scattered all over the Mediterranean basin, and, and, and at the week of Passover, they would come back to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover together. But they would come with their foreign currency, and so they would need to exchange their money at one of these, these money-changing tables. But unfortunately, 
the people running those tables were, were running a racket of sorts. And you can see Jesus calls them a den of robbers in verse 13. They would set up their tables and the chairs in the outer court of the temple. And instead of just giving a fair swap or a fair exchange for the money, they were probably keeping some amount for themselves. They were giving a rate that was unjust. And then not only that, they were probably selling pigeons. If you see, the, the, the verse talks about pigeons. You're like, this is confusing. Why are we talking about pigeons? They were selling pigeons because poor people, people who didn't have a lot of resources, would come to the temple, and in order to actually have fellowship with God, they would get to, to buy just a small pigeon and make that their offering. But these people, this den of robbers, as Jesus calls them, were most likely extorting from the people, stealing from those who didn't have very much to begin with. And what this shows us is that the temple system in Jesus' time was totally corrupt. Not only were they in the wrong place, they were in the temple courts. They shouldn't have been there. They should have been outside somewhere so that the, the, the business of dealing with God through this sacrifice was distant, distant from this exchange of money. But instead, they had moved it into the temple. And not only that, they were doing it in a corrupt fashion. And this situation gives Jesus an opportunity to introduce himself again to Jerusalem. You see, the humble one who rides on a donkey is also, is also the holy and just priest who is outraged that the sacrificial system has been turned into a racket, turned into a way to extort money, and not only that, turned into a way to extort money inside the temple courts. Well, he doesn't explain himself but he just starts to overturn the tables and then he allows the voice of scripture, the voice of God, to actually interpret what he's doing. If you look at verse 13, Jesus' justification for why he's going to turn over the tables is from Isaiah 56. Look at verse 13. Jesus said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, this line from Isaiah, 20, uh, Isaiah 56 is how Jesus again introduces himself by quoting the Old Testament. Now, from this passage, we learn that the temple, God's house, that's, that's what they're talking about. The temple, which Jesus calls God's house, which Isaiah called God's house, was designed to be a place of communication with God. A place where you actually fellowshiped with God. A house of prayer not a financial scheme. You know, Deuteronomy 14 describes how after one of the sacrifices, the people were supposed to, to go and eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice. This was the point of the sacrificial system. It enabled them to come to God on his terms, to remember that he was holy, to offer this sacrifice which symbolically represented that they needed a sacrifice, and then to receive his forgiveness. The symbolic nature of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament truly communicated to the people that they needed forgiveness from God. And as they offered these sacrifices, whether it was a pigeon or a bull or a lamb or whatever they could afford, as they offered that sacrifice to God, then God invited them to be restored into fellowship with him, to enjoy his presence, to talk with him. It's why Isaiah says that the temple should be called a house of prayer. It was about restoring fellowship with God. That was the whole point 
of the sacrificial system. It taught them about his holiness. Yes, you can't just come into God's presence. But it also taught them about his forgiveness and his love. He wanted to still be with his people. So he, he, he creates this sacrificial system so that they could offer a lamb or a pigeon or a bull and still enjoy the presence of God. Enjoy his forgiveness. Enjoy his holiness. Enjoy his love. Well, if you know someone forgives you after you've offended them, if you know they have actually forgiven you, you are able to hear them say, it's, it's done, I've forgiven you. We don't need to talk about it anymore. Does that make you want to pull away from them? No. It makes you actually want to talk with them. You have this burst of, of joy that this person is no longer holding this grudge against you any longer. You're no longer at odds with them. But instead, you know, oh, they, they've, they've let go of it. I'm, I'm so glad they've forgiven me. Oh, there's so many things I've been wanting to talk to you about, but we haven't been able because my conscience has been so heavy. But now, as a result of that forgiveness, as a result of the way the sacrificial system was designed to function, people could come and talk with their creator. They could come and talk with their Lord. But instead of being a house of prayer, the temple system there during Jesus' time had become a den of robbers. It had become a corrupt system that was excluding people. It had become a way for certain people to make money off of others. It was no longer a house of prayer. People needing to come and lament towards God, to offer him their praise, to offer him their gratitude, had to first pay an extra fee, you might say. So Jesus responds and overturns the tables of the money changers. And in light of his attack on this corruption, in light of his attack on these, these you might say, powerful figures, it's no surprise that what happens immediately after that, immediately after that, is that he attracts two desperate and physically weak individuals. Two disabled people see what has just happened with these tables. And then look at verse 14 to see what happens. A blind and a disabled man came to him, and Jesus healed them. It's as if his act of justice against the extortioners made him a magnet for people who were weak and vulnerable. See, people who knew their neediness saw him deal with oppressive people, and they thought, that is somebody that I want to go to. So the, the blind and the disabled person come to him. But in verse 15, we see that the camera angle changes. And all of a sudden, the lighting gets dark. And these corrupt leaders or perhaps people who are associated with them are now on the scene. The people who were unwilling throughout the course of Jesus' ministry to repent at his presence. It tells us, verse 15, the chief priests and the scribes saw this miracle the chief priests and the scribes were the religious leaders of Israel. They saw the miracle. And not only that, when the miracle happened and, the, and the, the person who was disabled stood up and walked, children saw. These children saw this miracle happen and they heard and they, they started to shout, Hosanna, son of David. They cry out with a loud voice, praising Jesus for what he has done. And these scribes and, and these, these chief priests, they hear this and, and they're not happy that the children are crying out. 
The humble are crying out. Those who know their dependence are crying out. That is, children. You see, it's the voice of Scripture repeatedly in this section which tells us who Jesus is. And then it's the voice of the humble, children, who are actually able to rightly identify who Jesus is. And so they, they cry out, Hosanna to the son of David, the voice of the humble. They know who he is. Whereas those who are wise and understanding in their own eyes respond in a different way. You look at the end of verse 15, and Matthew tells us that they are indignant. Two men just got healed, and they are indignant that children are praising Jesus because two men just got healed. The contrast couldn't be more stark. You see, the arrogance, those who are wise in their own eyes, rage at Jesus. But the humble, the humble people, they introduce him to the world. They rightly announce who he is, the son of David, just like the blind men last week, or the children this week, or the sinners throughout the Gospel of Matthew, like Matthew himself, a tax collector. These are the people who are able to rightly introduce Jesus to the world. They can cry out, praise the son of David, praise the good king. The good king has returned. Corruption is no longer ruling. The good king has returned. The blind and the disabled are are healed. The good king has returned. We're able to talk to God again now at the temple. The children saw that. And most likely, they're they're making up a song as they say, Hosanna to the son of David. It's, It's most likely a quote from Psalm 118. And the people of Israel, of course, sang the Psalms. So they probably made a song out of this phrase, Hosanna to the son of David. The children are watching the curses of this world slowly reverse. So they break out in song. The children are singing. The blind are receiving sight. The disabled are being healed. Right worship is being reestablished instead of financial extortion. The scene couldn't have been more joyful A massive celebration that God has sent his king to restore order into the world. And these humble children are able to see what's happening. And so they introduce Jesus' true identity to the world. They say, praise him, the son of David. They know this is the king. The good king has returned to Zion. But the darkness, of course, has not yet been fully extinguished. In verse 16, these indignant ones, as they are called, ask Jesus a simple question out of their anger. Do you hear what they are saying? These scribes and the Pharisees look to Jesus and they say, do you hear what what they are saying, talking about the children? And you'd think, now is the time for Jesus to actually say something about himself. you think this would be the time. But what does he do? He lets the voice of God speak for him one more time in this passage. Talking to the men who were indignant, uh, who most likely had the Bible memorized, he says with a hint of sarcasm, have you never read? Now they, they most likely had it memorized. 
Psalm 8 would have been something that they knew. It's like when you start your devotionals at the beginning of the year and you make it to Genesis 9, you know. They would have known Psalm 8. (laughs) So he says, have you never read? You can hear the sarcasm. And then he quotes Psalm 8 to them and he says, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. This final introduction to who Jesus is is the most shocking of all. Psalm 8 is a song of praise to God for creating the world. It's a song about creation. The the, the part that Jesus quotes is is the second verse, but let me read the first verse. It says, O Lord, and that, that is Yahweh, O Yahweh, our master, O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, our master, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. That's verse one. That's not what Jesus quotes, but that's the context. And then in verse two, as quoted in Matthew, Jesus says, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. What Jesus says, have you never read Psalm 8? You're wondering why they're praising me? You're wondering why, why they're singing a song of praise? The children, why they're singing? Have you never read Psalm 8? Yahweh, the Lord, has set up the world in such a way that little infants would praise him. Now those infants are praising Jesus because he is the very presence of Yahweh on the earth. That's what this means, that Jesus says, it is right that they're praising me because Yahweh says infants will praise him. Do you see the logic? Jesus says, it is right that they are praising me because Yahweh says that infants will praise him. Jesus is telling us that the very presence of the creator, Yahweh, is now on the earth. The creator has entered his creation And the way that creator built the world, he has built it in such a way, the fabric of this creation is such that only the truly humble people actually understand God. That's what Psalm 8 teaches us. The fabric of the universe is such that only those like little babes are able to actually praise God. Now Matthew fleshes this out over and over again in his gospel. Sometimes he talks about repentant people. When he entered the scene in Matthew 3, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Other times he talks about meek people and the Beatitudes. Other times he talks about those who mourn. Other times he talks about the least of these. Other times he says, the last shall be first. Hopefully you remember all of these quotes. It's being demonstrated there in the temple as the children are actually going with the grain of creation and praising the creator rightly by by saying, Hosanna to the son of David. If you need a, a passage for this, Jesus in Matthew 11 says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Or Matthew 18, when Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter 
the kingdom of heaven. In this passage, the children are humble enough to actually understand who Jesus is. The blind are humble enough to understand who Jesus is. The disabled are humbled enough to understand who Jesus is. They know they need help. They know they are in great need. They know that they are creatures in desperate need of their creator's intervention. And only those who know they are in great need understand Jesus. This is why Jesus spent time with tax collectors and sinners. They were ostracized from society. It was clear to them that they had problems. It's why he says he did not come for those who are well, but those who are sick. It's why he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's why he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's why he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's why he says, blessed are those who are reviled and persecuted on behalf of Christ. It's why he continues to talk about the fact that only those who are like little children actually understand who Jesus is. Only those who repent make their way into the kingdom of heaven. The nature of the kingdom, and remember, the nature of the kingdom based on Psalm 8 is that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, why is that the way that God operates? Why is it such that the the universe has this in its fabric? It's not because God is in some way um, miserly, that in some way he wants um, selfish attention. It's not because God is vain. No. It's because he is the only one who is actually worthy of receiving praise and glory. Creatures after the fall are not worthy of praise or glory. Sinners are not worthy of praise or glory. We do not deserve to be praised. Our hearts are corrupt. Our hearts are wicked. We must repent to actually see the nature of the universe. That's what Psalm 8 is teaching us. And not just the nature of the universe, but the nature of the renewed kingdom of God. Either you repent of your sin in order to see Jesus clearly, or you will not see him at all. That's what this passage is teaching us. Why? Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And if you're here tonight thinking, I, I don't know if that's true. And maybe you're not an arrogant person, but you feel somewhat self-reliant. And maybe your life is going pretty well, actually. You haven't faced a hard time. You haven't got to the end of yourself. Now, let me try and convince you, actually, that Jesus is worth repenting for. We started out talking about the voices which introduced Jesus to Jerusalem. But now, let's talk about the purpose of his introduction to Jerusalem. This is our final point. The reason that he came, the purpose of his introduction into Jerusalem, is not just to undermine the corrupt temple and the sacrificial system. It's not just to do away with these arrogant scribes and Pharisees. Yes, he was going to accomplish that. 
It's not because the, the, the high priests were, were really not serving the people the way they should. It's not that just that, that Israel was corrupt when he arrived. Yes, that was true. He doesn't do away with the temple and the sacrificial system because they are broken. He does away with them because they were always designed to point forward to his arrival. They were always designed to point forward to Christ. That is why the temple and the sacrificial system exist. Or I should say that's why they existed. See, the world does not need a temple to meet with God. The world can meet with God by the presence of the Holy Spirit who is pointing the world to Christ. The world doesn't need a pigeon or a lamb to sacrifice on the altar of God. We don't need that. It was always pointing forward to Jesus, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So when he comes to do away with the sacrificial system and the temple, yes, he does that because they were corrupt, but he does that actually because the plan all along was for him to actually reveal the true nature of the temple, the true nature of the altar, the true nature of the sacrificial system. All of those bulls and goats, all of, all of those priests entering, it's all designed to point forward to Jesus. His purpose for going into temple, to going into the temple and starting this, this fight, you might say, was to reveal to Israel that he was the point of their entire existence. Everything about that system, which was good news, and I hope you've heard, it was good news. It was how the people got to meet with God. Everything about it was a shadow meant to point them to the substance. And what was the substance? What was the purpose that Jesus entered Jerusalem? Well, he told us for four chapters before he got there that he might suffer and die and rise again to take away the sins of his people. Jesus is worth repenting for. He's worth repenting for. If you look to him and you see one who was actually murdered on your behalf, but who didn't stay in the grave, but actually conquered the grave and is now summoning you, calling out to you, saying to you, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. He is calling out to you and he is worth repenting for. He is worth repenting for. See, the story that, that this, this gospel, the gospel of Matthew ends with, is not actually a tragedy. It's not depressing. The murder of Jesus, the story of the cross, and the wisdom of God is the greatest and most beautiful story that we will ever know. It is the greatest and most beautiful story ever told. It is what we will sing about Forever, if we repent, the story of God taking on flesh so that he might die for his people and bring them back to himself. See, if you are interested in joining this story, the story of the universe, the universe Psalm 8 tells us, then you must remember that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So I, I, I plead with you, Repent today. Today, repent. And enjoy all that Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. And once you've repented in that fashion, come to him and, and talk to him. Pray to him. He is the fullest expression of the house of prayer. He is summoning you to himself, saying, come to me. 
He wants you to come and talk to him. He welcomes you with gladness and forgiveness. And today, if you haven't repented, he's calling to you today and he's summoning you to come. Uh, If you have repented and you've heard this message before, but you want to grow in grace, you want to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, you want to grow in beholding the glory of God, then whatever that sin is that you're holding on to today is just too good to let go of. Uh, Jesus wants you to repent of that as well. And he wants you to come to him. Uh, He is worthy of your repentance. His glory is worth it. Let's pray. Our gracious God, uh, we rejoice that Jesus is a, a good king who came to save his people from their sins, from our sins, from my sin. And we ask you to send your spirit to, to grant us repentance that we might rightly respond to you and enjoy your presence forever. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.